Hello and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with musician and designer Dan Tullow. I first met Dan back when we were both in our teens here in Richmond, and I quickly discovered him to be an amazing guitarist. His guitar work is something that blends heaviness, melody, and structure in a way I have found very few artists to be able to pull off. And this shaped the bands he has played with, like Independent, From Earth to Ashes, Scarlet, and Spitfire. So it was awesome to get to catch up with him and also learn about his professional life as a designer and even talk about parenting a little bit. All in all, this was a great conversation to have, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we had having it. So with that, here's my conversation with Dan Tullo. Enjoy. How did you get into uh, punk rock? Uh, punk rock specifically, I mean, I, I, kind of, I grew up as kind of like a metal kid. I... Um, I probably got into what I would consider like what I felt like was music like, seriously for the first time, probably when I was around fourth, fourth grade. Okay. And so, yeah, I heard Ride the Lightning, um, in the back of my okay. host Camaro <laughs> and that wasn't, that's literally the truth. Like he had a 86 Camaro and he had borrowed the tape and we were riding up to my family's farm and it's about a two hour drive. So it was enough time to hear the whole album through. But all I remember is kind of laying down back on bucket seats, which if you never lay down bucket seats, it doesn't work very well if you lay across two of them because they're pretty deep. So I was doing that and I, I remember kind of trying to sleep with my mom and him and I were driving the family's farm and I heard the song with bells at the beginning of it and i was like what is this and just hearing that whole album front to back like that blew me away and i immediately got obsessed with it i think the next week this was like 1989 or something but i remember walking in to music land at chesterfield town center and just going to the metallica section i didn't know what the album was i just asked him what is what is this he said metallica i think i bought injustice for all first um, and I liked it, but I, I really wanted that other record. And so the next week I got Ride the Lightning and just became obsessed with that. And over that summer, I bought every single Metallica record that was out at the time, which was just the first four, the thrash records. And then um, other than Garage Days, I couldn't find that. And then at this time, Peaches, which was near Cloverleaf Mall in Richmond, Sold posters. So I started buying posters, and you know, I got really obsessed with that. So I, I really got into metal first, and you know, got into Megadeth and everything else. And really, up until probably about eighth grade, you know, I was in fourth grade at the time. So about four years, all I listened to was metal, and progressively wanted heavier and heavier stuff. Yeah. Really started getting into Sepultura and. Um, entombed, a lot of you know, a lot of earache stuff and bolt thrower and all that crap. I think probably around ninth grade, one of the guy I go to middle school with, who we both know, Lang Langdon Oliver. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he he and I were really good friends, and so we were both into metal. Like he had kind of gotten into some of it. I can't remember if one of us either did to him or if he already was into it. But, I mean, he had a Garth Brooks CD, so I mean that shows his variance in music. I think like when Thunder Rolls came out, he he wanted that. But anyway, I used to go to his house, we'd listen to it, and there was like two kids in our middle school, or three maybe, who liked metal. I mean, 
it was not a lot of kids. It was like him and I, Daniel Plunkett, and then anyone listening that doesn't know who these people are, unless they're from Richmond, but but there were a couple of people who were older who liked it, like, you know, Brandon Miller and Ryan Shade and Matt Ag. So there were like a few, but after they graduated middle school, it was really just me and Daniel Plunkett. And then right around that time in eighth grade, Lang started getting into punk and he started playing with you guys. And so I think that started to introduce me to it a little bit. He was kind of an alternative, you know, because we were calling alternative back then too. And I started going to St. Edward shows and television and saw you guys and saw Aftermath and Disinterment and all those bands. But at that time, I was still like a hesher, like I still had a mullet. And, you know, it was really in all that crap and just wore black all the time. But oh, yeah. I think around that time is when I kind of was like, okay, there's this thing called punk rock. I was going to Sound Hole. And I think Bo Dillard, he was the guy who was working the register almost every day at Sound Hole. And he was probably the first person to suggest that I buy something punk. I would ride my bike up there. It's like three miles away from my house. And he was like, hey, you know, you like metal. If you like Slayer, you're probably like spin and broken. And so I bought Life, Love, or Grad. And then I think they just had a far side, which is like a post-punk band. It used to be on Revelation. Yeah. I saw that CD. I was like, oh, that's a cool logo. So I just bought it. And then Gorilla Biscuits. And those were like my first punk CDs. And then at the flea market, there used to be a guy who sold UCDs and I bought a Descendants record and just started getting into it. And around that time, it's when I met Chris Ferguson and Joe and all those guys. And long story short, I, I got into playing music around that same time. Like when I got into Metallica, that's when I first started playing guitar. And fast forward four years later, I was like, I want to do a band. And I played with you know, Ryan Shane, some people in middle school, but we never had a drummer. So we were literally just playing at my house and no drummer, which was stupid. But oh, wow. the first like real band was Chris Ferguson. And it was really just because I went to Sound Hall and there was a little thing hanging up on the board that said, hey, I'm a drummer. I like, he, was, he had like a really good list of bands on there. It was like Megadeth, he had a few other metal bands. And then I think he might have Fishbone or something on there too. It was like, pretty eclectic and going over to his house, that's really when it kind of opened up even more for me. So between the guys and, you know, what became independent and, you know, you and your friends, it was like, oh yeah. I mean, I still liked metal, but I started getting into more stuff. So that's kind of how I, it all happened. It just so happened at Richmond was kind of blowing up with all that stuff around that time. You know, there's like two pulls that like, people that get into punk, I think, or at least in, in, in our age or whatever, they either came from metal or they came from alternative. Yeah. And like, I always identified more on the metal side of it. Um, what do you think was it about? Um, I mean, cause it's so it's so hard to like think about it now because of just everything that has developed from it. But, like, when you heard, like, Ride the Lightning, like, what did it sound like to you? Like, because you say that is the thing that made you start playing guitar. Like, what was it about it? It was such a, like, I mean, I liked, it's not like I didn't have any music before that. Like, I had a Beach Boys tape when I was five, and 
Right. I mean, growing growing up in the 80s, like, I watched everything on MTV, so I was naturally attracted more to rock. My brother was really into Guns N' Roses when they came out, and I liked, I had Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. But, I mean, I didn't feel any sort of identity with any of that stuff. It was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And my dad rode motorcycles, so I was like, yeah, it kind of feels right. But then, I mean, I also had a 21 Jump Street tape, so it shows you I had, like, zero, like, identity in it. But right, right. When I heard when I heard Metallica, like specifically "Ride the Lightning," I just it was such a good record. It, it like it was aggressive, um, but it was also really well written and melodic, and the songs took you somewhere. And that's what I yeah. always thought set Metallica apart in like kind of early thrash scene. Not that the other bands didn't, but for me. I just, there was, the band had something magic about it. Um, and I think still does on some, to some degree. I'm not a, as big of a fan of their newer stuff, but I also just think there's something about the people in those, that band that feels very earnest and real. Um, yeah. Whatever people think of them. But especially, um, that record just, I don't know, just was so good. I mean, I think hearing... Cliff Burton playing in the beginning of her in the Bell Tolls was just like, what? It was so out there, so weird and different, but I still listen to that record a lot. Like, Fight Fire with Fire just blows my mind each time I listen to it. Um, it's just so tough. <laughs> and I think there was like an anger in it that was palpable and real and clear, but that record too just kind of goes a lot of different places if you listen to it start to finish. It's just really arguably one of I've seen some people say they like that better than puppets. I probably like puppets better, but it's just such a good record. So I, I, that kind of set me down a road of just, I was not a super happy kid around that time, especially as I got a little older and I really tapped into a lot of that. And it, I think that when you're talking about the difference, I think both people who are come down the, came down the alternative line in the punk or the metal line, both tap into, I think, some sort of disgruntledness. I think one is probably a little bit more anger outwards. And, yeah. And maybe even a little nerdier, honestly. And then I think right. alternative, I think alternative always felt a little bit, like I was, I was a fan of a lot of those bands, but I think it always felt a little bit more maybe tongue-in-cheek, and then also, I don't know, maybe a little bit more snobby on some level. Ooh, I always felt like, yeah, I just always felt like metal, especially around that time, probably because of Poison and all that stuff getting crushed by uh, the Seattle thing. They're definitely, like, I remember seeing a, a Billy Joe Armstrong had a, a sticker on his guitar that said, like, metal sucks. <laughs> And back then, that's when you, like, actually took offense to crap like that. I was like... Right, 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 right. Like, F you. You clearly listen to metal. Like, I can hear how you're playing. But um, anyway, I I always... I still feel like... Yeah. I still feel like metal is, like... It is a little bit more of a... Not an outsider thing, but it's not cool. (laughs) Like, it's definitely... It's more mainstream, but it's still kind of people look down on it because it just seems dumber, but it's, 
I don't know. I've always just felt more attraction to that. But I still love, I love alternative music. I mean, around that, I think that was the weird thing too back then was there was such overlap. Um, like yeah. I was really into Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. I always felt like those two bands of the whole Seattle thing took more of like the Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin route. Um, right. Like Soundgarden is basically Led Zeppelin. <laughs> If you listen yeah. to it with some Black Sabbath in it, and then Allison Chains, it's just I don't even know. I they were just a whole other thing, but I always felt like that there was sort of a, a sort of a difference between is like you kind of had like Pearl Jam was basically a late breaking classic rock band, Nirvana sure. was like a punk band, but with Beatles mixed in, and then the others basically metal bands um, like kind of coming out of a blues sort of bent but anyway like that was weird back then it was there was definitely this sort of blending of all that stuff that was interesting and it was an awesome time to grow up for if you were into music well I'm sure yeah and a lot of those bands too I think I think specifically Soundgarden and I think um Alice in Chains were kind of metal band and, and Nirvana were more like metal bands, I think, when they formed. Yeah. Maybe not so much Nirvana, but they were like bands that kinda had formed maybe as metal bands and then you know, they, they had no hope of identifying with a lot of what the ideas of popular metal were then. Yeah. Um, like the kind of more glam aspects of it, which is honestly kind of what Metallica was about back then. The, the thing I think that is hard for people to imagine is like, if you hear a record like, like Miles Davis's kind of blue, if you listen to it as someone that grew up much later than it was released, it just sounds like jazz to you, but you don't hear the sonic imprint that it left on that yeah. genre, like before and after. And I feel like the same thing kind of happened with Metallica. Like, I feel like, unless you were really watching metal at the time, it's really easy to kind of forget the individualness, like the individualistic qualities that that band really brought to it. Like, cause they kind of yeah. like changed it. And after that, like, I remember like when new Metallica records would come out, like specifically when Injustice for All came out, that drum sound, as much as people oh, yeah. talk shit on it now or like whatever, <laughs> there being no bass on the record or whatever. Yeah. I remember listening to that as a kid being like, holy shit, that's the best drum sound I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I totally agree. Like, I am. Um, it's funny, I even think about it, so you said it, but it's a really good point. Like, it's hard to put yourself back in that mind frame, or if you weren't you know, into it then, like, it's hard to, like, notice how, just how big of a deal some of that stuff was, like, you know, you talk about that drum sound, like, I remember when we would go to my brother's friend's house, he was, like, the one person who had, like, a legit stereo system in his car, and this is back when most stereo systems and cars were pieces of crap, and right. so people back then would, you put an amp, you know, like a power amp in your car, you'd have a... yeah subwoofer you'd have tweeters and you have a nice system and so i used to just love getting in his car he would usually blast like acdc or van halen and i was a younger kid and like all i thought about was metal all the time and so i remember i would just beg him to play like one of my songs meaning like 
hey, can you play the ending part of one on your system? Because I want to hear the bass drum when it starts oh, going yeah. super fast. Like, yeah, the, those things were so much more rare then. Like, they didn't have, like, just albums sounded different, and it felt more obscure. And then Metallica back then was, like, they weren't a popular band. It's really hard for people, I think, to imagine. Like, it was sort of like people didn't know what it was. I remember my first day of middle school when I joined, like, I went to Middleton Middle, sixth grade, I, like, planned out the shirts I was going to wear that first week. It was kind of like what I imagine it's like on a prison yard where you're like, yeah, yeah it's like yeah. you're showing you're showing your colors kind of. And right. it was, it was, I mean, I wore my anthrax shirt and I remember like an older kid was like, cool shirt. And it was like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm in with the metal kids or something. And because it really did, it was sort of back then if you were, and anything like that, it was rare. And so it was a cool thing. I don't, it kind of sucks because I, there's, it's with the access to everything, nothing feels that special anymore, but that stuff, at least back then was so rare, especially like, I mean, you couldn't even find the stuff. There was no internet. You could basically order it out of a magazine or if you had a record store near you, like you know, buy the shirt. That was why Town Hall was such a big deal in Richmond because that was such a kind of unique store to have anywhere, and we were lucky to have it there. So, oh, for sure. I mean, I, you know, speaking of that, I mean, even like you know, Metallica. You mentioned Garage Days couldn't find it. I happened to just be in Canada <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> and they happened to have it up there, just on the fucking shelf at like a department Crazy. store or something. I don't know why. It was like that. You know, I guess it was like import rights maybe because of the covers or something on it. Um, like because it covered yeah. the misfits and the shit. That's the only thing I can think of is like maybe it was just licensing. But you also think like all the persecution we got for that too. You know, like I remember because of wearing too much black, just the color, you know, yeah. like you would get like kind of like questioned about do you worship the devil? Like, <laughs> like all this stuff, like, and there was a lot of that weird, like kind of pushback, um, you know, especially growing up here in the South um, where it's like kind of like Southern Baptist and we would get a lot of like weird looks. I'm sure you did too. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And, totally. and, and kind of assumptions about your morality and all this stuff. And it's like, dude, this person's like in seventh grade. Like what the fuck? you expect them to be into you know um, i know i have a few distinct memories of that like oddly it didn't happen as much as i would have maybe it happened more than i thought it did but i think a couple of things like one i just felt like you know well i'm never gonna meet any girls or anything you know i just felt kind of ugly and stupid and i wanted to grow my hair long but my mom wouldn't really let me grow it long in the back I don't think a lot of people right. understand what the mullet was. Yeah. A lot of people think it was an intentional choice, but it was just nope. literally all those kids wanted long hair, but their parents would just say, well, just don't cut it. Just don't <laughs> cut it long in the front. So that's why it happened. But, yeah, your parents um, wanted to be able to look at you and pretend like you had normal hair when they see your face. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that what was <laughs> None of us wanted that dumb haircut, but no. I do... I do remember, like, um, one time, so 
back then, another thing people would do is just go to the mall and walk around. Like, oh, hell yeah. that was what people did. And it's probably hard for people to imagine that now, but back then you would just get dropped off at the mall on Friday around like five with like a friend or two. And then literally walk around until nine when the mall closed and your family would pick you up. And like, there were tons of kids doing this because there was just, yeah. there was just nowhere to go. Downtown was probably more dangerous back then. And then no internet. And if it was, it wasn't like it is now. And so you'd either do that or some places as you got older, you, you would drive up to McDonald's and sit in the parking lot. But I remember going to the mall once and I had taken my dad's old, military jacket from Vietnam and I I'd gotten my mom to cut out the damage incorporated shirt that I had. People aren't familiar with it. It was like it was like the best Metallica shirt. It's from the eighty six tours, the first thing Puss had ever did for them. Oh, that and was the first one he did? Yeah. He did that shirt for the the Master of Puppets tour, the Aussie. It was two it was a skull with two bats with you know, nails going through the skull yeah. and so really cool. It's still an awesome design. So anyway, I, I cut that out. We ironed it on my dad's military jacket. At the same time, I, I think I had, my dad was in second cavalry, and so he had a certain patch, like a certain emblem he wore. There's a first cavalry patch that's out there. You can most people will recognize it if they're into military history, but it's like a yellow sort of shield with a horse. One side of the kind of stripes are as yellow and black. It's really oh, yeah, cool yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd seen a picture of Jason Newstead with like a little pin of that. So I'm like, oh, I'll get that. So the Army News store put it on. And this lady completely screamed at me at the mall. I was there walking around and she basically, I guess she was like a stolen valor thing to her, which I probably understand a little bit more now. I'm older and have friends who serve in the military. But I mean, I was just a metal kid wearing yeah. a jacket <laughs> and put a in patch on. Which, yeah, I mean, I had a mullet and there's a metallic. I think it was just the fact of all of it together. It was just, she was just sort of like, I think if I had yeah. been a more clean cut looking kid, it would have just been like, oh, he's probably like specs the military. But because I had it all mixed together, it was sort of like this, hey, hippie, what are you doing? So mm-hmm. anyway, that's my only sort of, distinct memory other than people just look at me like a piece of garbage <laughs> there was a lot of that well so when yeah. you guys when you met up with the guys at Soundhole to to start independent um i mean so that was your first like band with a drummer yes yeah so basically you know i answer that ad i you would cut the little tip, little piece of paper off so i called chris ferguson i was 14 and like summer of 94, I guess. It was literally the summer before I started high school. And so I called him and he had me come over to practice and he had this amazing drum set. Like he had like this really nice, huge pearl drum set. It even had like a cage. <laughs> so it had like cymbals hanging for it. It was like almost too much. It was basically his whole room, but he was a great drummer like at that age. I was by far the youngest person. So he was like 16 or 17 at the time. I think Joe was 19. But I first was jamming with him all day, just me and him, and then the other guys came over later that day. And so I remember looking out the window, seeing Joe walking up, and then this guy, Ben Godby, who went to Clover Hill High School with Chris, came over and so just jammed with him. And 
I played, I think we tried to just jam on some other stuff, but then I played, I had a riff that later became Fist to the Face, which was one of our early songs. I had written that song when I was like 13. Just I was trying, as silly as it sounds, trying to write something that sounded like Sacred Reich. <laughs> I had heard them on a, I heard a commercial for this song they had called Independent. It was had nothing to do with the name, but they had this thing in the chorus where it started does this descending dissonant chord, and I, I thought that was cool, so I kind of ripped that off for our chorus, and then had written the riff. I think that was the first song we did. I think we might have even started playing it that first time. And within like, we practice every single day. So like after that, Chris would pick me up every single day and bring me over to his house and we'd play in his living room and would practice from like 11 in the morning to like four. I mean, we were kids. So luckily, just because we were doing that much, we wrote about five songs Within. Oh, yeah. And so that was like the, the first demo right there, like that y'all were writing songs for? Yeah, it sort of became that. Like, what sort of happened was at first we were called Throwdown before there was a band called Throwdown. I think we had some other really bad name. I can't remember what it was, but I think we named it Independent when Ryan Shade joined. So basically, we we, we played from like that. July or August until I think we played our very first show was at a party on Southside, which surprisingly I don't like a lot of people at it. I think we had five songs by then. And after that, Ben Godby left. And then I was like, hey, my buddy Ryan Shade, he's an amazing bass player. I had played with him in a band in middle school with no drummer for a year and a half or two years. <laughs> and so, so, so he, he, you know, Ryan and I had bonded over metal. He had, he was like the kid who actually had long hair. And yeah. it's like, I think he had just, I can't remember if he was already in a punk, but he was like in infectious grooves and suicidal. And, you know, anyway, I got sort of introduced him to them and they just hit it off immediately. By the time we did the first demo, we did that in the summertime after playing a lot of battle of bands. Chris Ferguson, I think. Left. And then Chris came back in the band again later. Scott Burnett played drums with us for a little while. Who again, I met through Soundhole. <laughs> I think he had written some stuff up on the wall too about he was really into Fishbone. And I kind of get their, both their drum sort of ads mixed up. But basically, both were great drummers, great guys. And that's kind of it. Like, band kind of evolved from there. We put out more demos and. I started getting more into bands like Damnation AD and a lot of, again, more of the metallic, like heavy sounding hardcore. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I still liked, I mean, I loved Madball. I loved Biohazard. There was definitely a lot of that in the early independent demos. But as we went on, I kind of moved away from the stuff that had more of a hip hop influence and deeper into like just anything really heavy. <laughs> so like, yeah, damnation, AD, groundwork, all that oh, stuff. God, got more, in, yeah, the noisier, the noisier hardcore bands, Bloodlet, all that stuff. I was just like, I basically wanted to do that. <laughs> so like the last independent demo definitely had a mix of like damnation, AD, in it and that kind of stuff. But yeah, that that was another CD. Like when I heard No More Dreams of Happy Endings, that was just what I remember first hearing it. Like, I remember exactly first hearing it, and that's all I thought about was that band for 
a long time. Yeah. Just a lot of the way I played after that came from that band. Just the guitarist of Dan Kid Olding who played drums in Better Than a Thousand and played guitar and battery, but his guitar work on that first Damnation AD record, like just, I started really getting into that. Both from a tone standpoint, like he had a really crazy guitar tone that sounded, I saw them play a bunch of times. One of the times I saw him in DC, he had like two rat pedals chained together and then. Oh, wow. Like a couple, uh, yeah, like I think he was doubling them and then he had two martial heads. I and mean, he was like one of the guys back then that for a hardcore band had like an insane setup. It was just like a wall of amps and an awesome played less Pauls and you know, it was just that guy was so good and I wish he had done more. But the thing that's always struck me about you was well, two things. One you write some complex parts <laughs> like like my band would have like okay it's guys like this this and this and you know it's basically a song your band it would be like nine different like changes so complex parts usually really riff based and then two you guys you you had a lot of care for your guitar tone um, more so than than other friends that I had, like you would really spend it seemed like a lot of time like kind of honing in maybe even for a specific song um or around a song, you would have these tones, and I'd notice as I'd link up with you throughout the years, like you know you'd be doing this, and then I don't know a few years later you're like kind of like angled in on this part of it um when do you think you started like developing? like an idea that like, oh shit, I need to have my own tone and actually like starting to really mess with it. Yeah. Um, well, first, thank you for saying that. I, um, at first, you know, you're just like, I want actually a decent distortion. <laughs> like, cause at the right. beginning, it's just, you have the crappiest dance on earth. Like, uh-huh. and then you, and your ears get more finely tuned. And so you like, you know, I thought I had really made it when I thought my first Marshall. It was like a Marshall valve state. It was like a valve state amp. And, Ooh, and, you I know, remember that me. preamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and it was like a definitely a step up. And actually, those things are coveted now by a lot of people who are recording now because they have this sort of 90s death metal sound. So a lot of mid-90s bands used them. But really, the reason why the bands used them is because they were cheap. They were like... You could get a Marshall half stack for $500. So that was like, I mean, you thought you had a half stack, but in reality, you had like some bogus speakers and a not very good solid stadium. But it was definitely a step up. Um, but I, when I first really sort of, I think, got into tone, I think it was listening to Entombed. Like, I remember when Wolverine Blues came out like 94 and it was right before I kind of as I mentioned started getting into punk but I remember like hearing that record just like that is the gnarliest sounding distortion ever I mean that that record the first three entombed records the guitar tone is insane but that record in particular is where they kind of I think really mastered it It as a mix of two different guitar tones and 
I was always kind of trying to get that tone. Even if you was the first, that first demo, the independent, it's really just me trying to get that tone with that crappy valve state. And all oh, I wow. did was I got a DOD graphic equalizer and I kind of got close with that. And I didn't find out until years later, actually probably just in the last few years, oh, they were using this Boss HM2, the Japanese model, with, um, at the beginning with a PV Bandit, um, the first, like, left-hand path, that record is an HM2 into that PV Bandit, and that's it. Um, as they got progressed, I think they moved into, like, I think by the time they got to Wolverine Blues, it was like an HM2 into like a Marshall JCM 900 or something. And then the other oh, guitar wow. player, or at least on the recordings, they would have a boss, just that regular distortion pedal. I think it's OD2 or OD1 or one of those. Yeah. And so they blended that and that got a really nice full sound. But the, the HM2 is like where everybody more recently has kind of ripped that. So whether it's trap them or black breath or it is more modern kind of metal bands that are kind of trying to or take inspiration and like say that with all due respect, but that are taking inspiration from Intuned, they all are using some version of that pedal. So I, that's when I really kind of was like, okay, there's like a whole other way you could go and, so when I would hear other bands from a metal standpoint, I always was more attracted to distortions that had a lot more mids in them and grit. And, yeah. you know, when, when you would play, that's what got me into a lot of them. I think when you were living on Marshall Street, you would play me Discharge or you know, anything in that skit system or anything like that kind of weird, kind of crustier stuff. What I loved about right. it was it was just, aggressive db like super fast and then the distortion was always left of center it was just strange and yeah i've, I've always loved that kind of stuff it just i always felt like it was sort of a felt a little bit like entombed but yeah i i loved that sound so i kind of got into that and as i got older i got into two bands kind of discovered them and was like okay now i think it was after playing as there was so much more presence and yeah. It's even more air air moving out of the speaker. If you're in front of the speaker, it just felt like before it always felt very tinny and it's like all of a sudden like, wow, I can feel I can feel how this feel this sound is just way more present. So and I just always kind of like tones and I mean other it's out of metal, even just good clean tones and fun little amps and I was always like weird kind of stuff, but Still to this day, I mean, I still just love playing with tones and, and trying different things. And I, I think back then, too, it was like a big, you know, like metal was still really developing itself. Like, it's really weird if you go back and listen to, I mean, taking Metallica again, but if you listen to, like, um, uh, Kill 'Em All, and then you listen to, like, I don't know, uh, Ride the Lightning or Master Puppets, the difference is crazy, but when I was a kid, I remember listening to it, and the difference wasn't that much in my head. Like, the yeah. difference was not that much. But now when I listen to it, Kill 'Em All sounds like a 70s record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. And, and fucking the other two sound like, like, like thrash. And, yeah. like, 
and I think it was because we, we hadn't seen what really came after it to maybe put those tones into like place on that timeline. Yeah. Um, yeah. cause they were kind of close, but there's more in common with kill em all. And like say thin Lizzie than yeah. there is <laughs> with master of puppet. You know what I mean? Um, oh, like, totally. was, I mean, yeah, things would change drastically. Like, I mean, I think that's one of the things that was so, you know, monumental about Nirvana was, you know, kind of one of those moments where your brain breaks. Like I kind of had that when I heard Metallica, but then I also heard that when I heard, you know, smells like teen spirit because yeah. it, it's so different than what you're used to. And like yeah. almost every year it would seem like whatever new record came out, like would be this whole new option of tones. Like that's where rock totally. and metal was. Totally. Yeah. And I think, I mean, alternative is probably even more interesting if you really go back in terms of tones, like, Oh yeah. So like the spe- spectrum was wider, like definitely in metal. It's like, it's probably like the differences between it's like if all you drank was Cabernet, it's like, okay, well you can really find the subtleties and tones of metal, but it felt like alternative was like the whole spectrum of, of everything. Cause they were playing with usually more interesting equipment. I mean, and I think that speaks to both genres is metal can sometimes get very, probably less metal bands I like probably than alternative bands, but the metal bands I like, I really like. And I think right. it's, it's a very distinct thing, but with alternative, you have just, those guys were getting really interesting amps, a lot of old guitars and they were pulling from more sources. And, and then also the rest of the band beyond just the guitars, like, drum sounds were way more interesting generally in a lot of those alternative records and because yeah they were generally not worried about being super tight it was more feel based and and then bass yeah. as well like and the bass tones and a lot of those like and Chris Novoselle is such a good bass player and listening to what he would do and how that would move behind the rest of the band was is really really interesting. It's I didn't appreciate a lot of that stuff at the time. It wasn't until I got a little older that I was like, well, this is really good. I mean, when you're a kid and you're making records, it's like, which is such a weird phrase, but we were. Um, but like you, you know, you're just excited to like hear that <laughs> what you just put down actually recorded. And then to have it played back, it's like, yeah, that sounds pretty much like my band. Exactly. It sounds so wonderful. And as you get older, you realize like, oh, that sounded like shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember just being so stoked to get a recording and not have hiss on it because generally we'd have to yeah. do like third or fourth generation, like tape shit. And to not have hiss, I was like, oh my God, like, look, it's so clear. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like yeah. a CD. It doesn't at all. <laughs> but totally. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about independent, because this kind of sticks out. Um, I mean, y'all have these amazing changes, great tone. But the other thing was such a positive band um, yeah. in a really cool way. And and I think that's kind of what maybe separated and maybe hindered y'all um, in kind of linking up with a lot of the other Richmond hardcore bands. Because yeah. – I think a lot of the Richmond hard, like, I mean, not specific to Richmond, just, but just hardcore bands in general. I mean, you have things like Girl Biscuits and all that stuff, but the bands that were positive were a little more rare. Yeah. Um, 
and there was definitely a lot more of the kind of like chugga chugga, like whatever stuff. Yeah. How did, how did that like, cause I know like one of the big things that me and you kind of like clicked on also outside of metal was you two. Um, yeah. Who is a phenomenally like positive <laughs> band, you know, um, yeah. like using their songs for a lot of good talking about things that are, you know, like kind of uplifting and like, you know, tying into politics. And I, you know, when I think of independent, um, I see a lot of that same thing. Like, how did that develop in the band? That's interesting. I never really thought about it like that, but I think you're right. And um, a few things. I think one, if you know Joe, like Joe is definitely a very positive person. I mean, it doesn't mean he's not a realist and won't sit, tell things like it is. Like that's actually what gives him a lot of credibility. Is he? does acknowledge when things suck or when things right. are wrong and, and speaks to it. But he also, he's a very funny person. Like, I think Joe can't help but be very, very funny. Like, he used to make me laugh so much, all of us. But he's, like, just, he's always focused on making things better. And so I think that was a lot of the spirit, especially. Like, he was the elder in the band, and I think we all kind of looked to him to set the tone of the band and you know there are a lot of times where he could have been a complete jerk um but he was just like a eternal optimist and if you know him still he still is and so i think that was a huge part of it and joe was definitely like a father figure to me in a lot of ways early on like right. I mean, my dad was gone and my mom's amazing but my brother wasn't and i weren't very close and so joe kind of served that spot for me and helped me sort of figure out who I was and what I believed in. I really am, well, I'd be very different if I hadn't met him. So I think one, that Joe was a big piece of that. And then I think for me, I was at the time, you know, like figuring out what I believed. I was, I was definitely like a very religious kid growing up. And so it was definitely not a very common thing in that scene, but I also like, I liked both things that I actually saw them very compatible. I didn't understand kind of what I believe actually aligns with a lot of what this scene is about, which is just treating everybody equally and treating people with dignity and being open-minded and accepting of people. And so that was like, I know that probably sounds weird these days because that's not at all what probably being religious feels like anymore. But like that time, it's just a different world. There wasn't like this sort of state-filled thing going on in politics, even though I'm sure there it was. It wasn't as like much of a feature of it in the way people interacted. Yeah, it wasn't dominant. Like people weren't rewarded for being complete jerks to each other. Right. So that was part of it. I think Joe, going back to him, like he just wrote about real things he believed in and he thought. And so we weren't writing lyrics as like, uh, oh, we need to put some lyrics in here. It's like everything meant something. And we didn't sing about the scene because, I mean, one, that's always such a weird thing. But like you can understand (laughs) when you're young because you're experiencing it. But, you know, I think Joe really thought a lot about what he wrote about and and, you know, if you're going to do that, you can either take the sort of dystopian view of, like, 
everything's awful. And I think that's perfectly legitimate and reasonable. I think that's an art form, obviously. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I actually love a lot of that. So a release, but I think just Joe's approach was be much more positive and uplifting. And I think with myself, I felt that way too at the time. Like that's kind of what I wanted to get out there. So, and yeah, it did sort of. We never really felt like we were. I mean, not saying this in a dork, not trying to say this in like this sort of self-congratulatory way, but I never really felt we never felt fully accepted in that scene. Just because, to your point it was a bit more probably like stereotypical hardcore was really popular at that time. And I loved a lot of that music too. So like, I'm definitely not, not looking down on any of it, but we just, I don't think we fit that mold in. It wasn't who we were at the end of the day. Like it would have felt like a front. Like I remember one time I wore a Jersey. Like jerseys were really popular at the time, and I went to oh, yeah. in the malls. Like, oh, I like this Kentucky jersey; it looks cool. I think I wore it to like one show, and I just either someone made fun of me, or I just realized, like, yeah, I'm not that guy. Not because, again, there's anything wrong with it. It's just, I think that's probably part of it too. It's like that was genuinely who we were at the time, right. and and I think again, going back to Joe is sort of like this father figure I would have he would have called me out like you are a poser right now so right I was I kind of always felt like I mean I overthought everything too like I felt like at times having earrings was materialistic (laughs) it's how stupid it's how like overthinking I was about everything at that age so I think there's an earnestness with kids at that age that's really kind of awesome and also when you think back to it is really like suffocating as being that age you like overthink oh everything God. so yeah i mean well and the I, interesting thing yeah. is like you're trying out so much stuff at those ages yeah that totally. some kids i think you know they're not you know like if you spend your childhood just trying stuff out that's cool but the the cool thing is that that I mean it was kind of remarkable about y'all is like y'all also had this identity as a band that is kind of rare to have such a like a um like a focused and kind of you know uh like squared away like like to the point where you, it, you could present it to someone and they can understand it identity at that age that's that's like really rare when you think about like this is the age to be trying things out you know what i mean yeah yeah i think part of it too is i mean joe i think the age difference the band amplified some of that a little bit Mm -hmm. like you know i was still a lot younger and so you know i mean like he was 19 i was 14 so by the time if fast forward three years later he's like 22 so, like, I'm just wanting to be able to hang with them. And you kind of go through those things you do at that age, trying to impress people. Like, even, I mean, it sounds silly, but, like, I remember sometimes, you you know, little things, like you say something you think is funny and you look at other people in the room to see if they're laughing. Yeah, and you're I trying to do that. Social. Yeah, and I remember Joe would call me out on that when I was young. And not in a mean way, like, oh, she's teaching me how to be like a man <laughs> like 
no offense, I don't mean to be gendered there, but just like I was a young guy, and that's what a lot of times guys do is they are trying to like fit in and he was like yeah don't do that you're that's immature and so i i learned a lot from all that and i really again that's the only place i got that so and you and i would have lots of conversations too about just everything like whether it's politics or morality or music or anything or so i think you and i i think probably were somewhat neurotic people <laughs> but when you find another person who's neurotic, mm-hmm. it's great because you're like, oh, okay, I'm not the only person who is way, way overthinking this. And sometimes it just takes the other neurotic person to be like, yeah, just don't worry about it or chill out. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the problem is if you actually are like thinking about things that you realize there's a thought to have about everything in the world, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get older and you're like, you get exhausted by that. I think there's changed a lot in 40 years, but like definitely it's funny to think back and like, God, I used to really worry about everything. It's awful. Oh yeah. Cause you're picking at that age, you're picking like, cause you're also kind of like experimenting with what matters to you, you know? And as you get older, I think you, you, you kind of pick what does matter to you and you stop fucking worrying about the other stuff. And as you get older and older and older, I think that, that area that you give a shit about just narrows. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Totally. Totally. And it's just yeah, like that's... why worry about stuff that's not relevant to like things that really pull on your heart, you know? And as you get older, you're like, you know what? I'm gonna put all my time into this because this this means more to me. You know, with everything from you know what you wear to, you know, the people you surround yourself with to what you listen to. You put it into where you see, hopefully, you put it into where you see the biggest return for yourself personally. You know, like, this makes me really happy. I'm going to do this or something like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So after after Independent, you guys started doing, or you, you started doing, um, well, and Ryan did too. Y'all, y'all did it from Earth to Ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, how the hell did that start? Yeah, sort of have to think back. Um, I'm trying to put the times together. There was a little bit of a gap, but not that long. I think, yeah, I, my, probably my senior year of high school, you know, I, I played a little bit with you and Matt Dennis and finally, finally played bass for a bit and played in, yeah. um, um, independent. And I think just around that time, we all just, I just stopped. It wasn't a bad thing. Like we just sort of like, okay, I think we're just kind of done. And I think Joe wanted to move he moved to England and I don't oh, know right. if one preceded the other, but we just sort of, I think we were just, we didn't realize we were kind of done and all in good terms. I started playing a ton of that time. Like I got, I don't know what preceded what, but I ended up getting a, a Mesa boogie dual rectifier and I started writing new music and just kind of had, I feel like everybody has these sort of bursts of creativity. Like the older I've gotten, I realize these things come in sort of like, ways um yeah and at, around that time I was going to college i had a sort of wave of, i just wrote a bunch and during the the ending of independent mark whitehead had started playing drums with us he was actually the last drummer in the band for a little while and all of a sudden it was just like oh let's well how about me and ryan and him start jamming and 
that summer, we just had this start writing to the music. Mark White at the time um, was working for like a trash um, trash service. So we had this amazing practice space, which was in the back of a trash truck repair shop um, oh, wow. down in Manchester. Yeah, it was in Manchester when it was still real dicey back there before it got, you know, gentrified. But so we'd practice there every night, um, a couple of nights, at least two or three nights a week, if not more. And we practiced from like five until midnight, which was just so weird. Cause I mean, that place again, it was behind a razor wire, but yeah, we wrote like wow. a ton of music. And I think really early on, we asked Cornell Ward to join. You know, I had met years before and um, yeah, that's sort of how it started is it was just the four of us and we wrote tons of music and then eventually found a singer, but yeah, that was a really fun time. And that, that band was much, was very different. It was a very kind of more aligned with, I think where I was starting to go musically at that time. Um, there was definitely more of that sort of damnation influence, but also some melodic influences that we brought in. And that was a really cool time music. It's right around when cave in, get out until your heart stops and, Converge and kind of that second wave of Boston hardcore came out. And so it was just, there was sort of like a different movement happening. The kind of traditional hardcore stuff kind of died down. And sort of this more metallic and melodic thing started coming into that scene. So it was, it was a really exciting time to be doing stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was like more methodical, like, like instead of that, that wave you're talking about, like people had more skills doing it. Like, maybe that's the best way to put it. Um, They seem to be, you know, like, actually trying to, like, putting a lot of work into everything. Like, from the parts to the sounds, like, people were really, I think, focused on trying to make, like, not only, like, have this cool part that made you feel a certain way, but also have it recorded well. Also, Mm -hmm. like have it played well like so you know they would pay attention to like what kind of guitar they played like what kind of amp they had um all kinds yeah. of stuff like that um it was a little more than just like hey let's go just fucking work this anger out and and fucking have people dance you know which yeah. is kind of what most you know kind of starting kind of punk and hardcore kind of gravitated towards um it's weird listening though to those two records because i almost see like I remember I in my head a lot of the From Earth to Ashes riffs sound like um the time capsule period of independent. Like yeah. like I can see them working together. Yeah. They definitely did. Like some of that stuff got written like parts of it were kinda of toward the end. Like there was one riff that we there's a demo we put out in ninety six that it was the first demo we just changed the last two songs on it. The ending riff of that song, one of those songs ended up in there in independent. But yeah, there was, again, I think it was probably the Damnation AD influence at the end. Like yeah. the way that Ken Olden would play chords, he would never, I mean, there were times that there were straight up power chords, but usually he would have these minor and major chords that were really dissonant and, I mean, probably, probably came out of, yeah, that's probably because he lived in D.C., but, like, it definitely, that stuff 
was I was like, okay, I'm going to lean more into this. Um, but there was also some melodic stuff that had come in. I would kind of gotten into some indie rock. I would listen to semi real estate and all that. And so there was definitely like a melodic thing that pulled in. But to your point around people like the change, I think a lot of it was, I mean, I, who knows, but probably what was coming up in the mid-90s was, you know, an extension of punk and hardcore in the late 80s, and people were starting to play that. But for, for I think for a lot of the bands that started to get older around then, like Caven and Converge, it's clear like those were just old metal kids, you know, like they were right. kids who grew up listening to Slayer or Metallica and trying to do it. And, you know, all those bands still also had that punk influence and whether it's in the ethos or the sound, like, I mean, I definitely think you know, we still liked hardcore, like traditional hardcore. We, I was, am still like a big fan of Madball and Sick of It All and all those bands. But I think, you know, most people kind of go back to what they listened to when they were really young. And for me, it was metal. So, and then with guitars and stuff, I don't know what that was. I think it was just, I had a Les Paul just because I had seen Randy Rhodes have one as a kid, and then Ken Olden had one. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, then, yeah, I think a, a lot of those bands, too. I mean, you could buy those guitars so much cheaper than, too. Like, oh, God. I mean, I had, there's so many guitars I had back then that I wish I still had, but I sold. But, yeah, it was, they were much easier to find, and, you know, the internet wasn't there yet, so you didn't have these stupid markups on all these guitars. Or just like, you know, weekend warriors who were spending a bunch of money that they had on them. Now I think people like us are older, and so you have a little bit more disposable income, so you're willing to pay. But back then, it's like I don't think there were people buying a lot of that stuff. You would just find, you know, old '70s and '60s and '80s Fenders and Gibsons like at Metro Sound, just sitting there, not that expensive. So it's just. Whole yeah, there were tons of them. I think back then it was just a different. Yeah, you know, it just wasn't people buying that stuff, especially in Richmond. I think Richmond also was even probably cheaper than most places because Richmond wasn't on the up and up back then. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember you know a lot of those, a, a common thing we'd have come into the studio would be kids that had gotten a Marshall, quote unquote, and the Marshall would be um, that fucking model that came out right before the JCM 800. You know what I'm talking about? It looks like it, it looks like a plexi. It looks like a JMP, but it, it, it is, it is literally the exact same thing as a JCM 800, but it still has that old plexi style front to it. There's one called like a 1987, I think Kurt Ballou used to use a lot, but I'm not sure. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I was not like, I veered off of Marshall Pass probably like late 90s. Now I'm starting to appreciate them a lot more. But I think for a while, it's like I had a hard time getting what the kind of tone I wanted out of them. I used to not even oh, know yeah. people used pedals. You know, like I didn't even, I used pedals as a kid when I started because my, practice amp sucked but then when I got like a tube amp I got a mace I was like 
Oh, I just want, I, I realized you would better the tube on its own sound, but I still never realized, like, oh, you can just, I didn't even know what a tube screamer was for. Like, I was like, oh, right. it just yeah, makes it <laughs> So I was like, if I had known that some of that stuff, I probably would have used a lot different amps because I would have just stuck a tube screamer or something else in front of a Marshall. Right. Because I, I always felt like the distortion pedal sounded real fake. I yeah. wasn't using it right. I didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now, you know, we would have figured that out in four minutes on YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow, why would we stick this shitty distortion pedal in front of this awesome amp? <laughs> I know. It's, I didn't realize how it all worked. I mean, it, you know, it's eventually you realize, like, oh, a distortion pedal is just a preamp. That's all it is. Um, but it wasn't until later that I probably got a little bit. I had a Sun Model T and one of the reissues of that, and then it had an effects loop. I realized, oh, okay, like sticking pedals in this thing will make it sound, it sounds way different than if I put it in front of it. And But even right. still then, it's like I probably could have had much better tone easily if I just stuck a, some sort of boost in front. But anyway, it's, all that stuff's cool. I think the one thing I'm glad I about that is it did make you kind of search out other kinds of amps that had really unique characteristics. For sure. And I mean, it, it's so weird too, because like, you know, compared to today, there were so few choices, you know, I mean, there was a lot yeah. of choices. I mean, if you're pulling from like the history of amps, you know, but like that were being yeah. made at that time. Like I remember, God, when that fucking JCM 900 came out, like oh, yeah. that was just it, you know, like everyone had one, you could get the SLX yeah. if you were fucking awesome. Um, but otherwise you just had that horrible amplifier and, um, <laughs> I, I didn't like Marshall's forever. Cause I, you know, the only one that I ever really got to play myself was like, you know, I think the first one was like a JCM 900 and I was like, Ooh, what the fuck is this shit? Like it didn't chug. It didn't do anything cool. Um, and I was just like, wow, this is not what I want. And so I ended up going back to little cinder land and yeah. fucking around over there. But like, yeah, that's, it, it's so crazy to think about like how much we did with so little and yet how much more we could have done. <laughs> looking I know. Oh, I know. Especially too, like you're, you start getting into recording and like, you know, I think, we were lucky in Richmond. Like we had access to really good studios for really cheap. And oh yeah, most people owned them were really great people. Um, I mean, and a big thanks to like specifically like fucking Mark Miley on that. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Mark's, yeah. His ethic, his, his decision to be like, yeah, I'm going to charge $25 an hour and just like work with fucking children, basically. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's pretty amazing, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah, he was great. I mean, he, the first like real demo that we did, I mean, we, we had that first demo on Independent, but the second one we did, I think, you know, you talked about Time Castle, Castle. Yeah, like that one he recorded and he was, it was like a day and a half or maybe just one day. But yeah, he was really, he would pay 600 bucks for it. And it took us probably six months to pay him that back. But, you know, he was so nice to us and kind. And I, he was a really great guy. And we played shows with his band. And um, and then Grant, who owned Montana, was always really good to us. I always loved that place. 
Because I learned later, like someone told me why, maybe you might have told me this, but why did you call it Montana? He's like, I just wanted to feel very chill in here, like Montana. <laughs> so, yeah, like, well, oh, that was really... part of it. And it was because he wants, he wanted to retire there one day. That was the other side of it, too, is he was like, because one day I was going <laughs> to say, fuck it and go to Montana. <laughs> but, like, yeah, but it was that kind of ethos at both places, like just kind of real laid back, like, they don't really give a shit about like what's cool or, um, yeah. you know, like what you're do- like, like they're, they're literally more concerned with what you're doing than like what you're, um, who you are. And, yeah. and, and that was, it worked really good for them and it worked really bad for them sometimes too, you know, like they didn't get maybe the acclaim that yeah. they should have, um, because they were busy making records for, you know, 14 year olds. Um, yeah. But at the same time, they made a lot of fucking and, and, and like to Mark, like Mark has a archive to this day of every single fucking band he recorded, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just nice. He has too. all the masters. <laughs> yeah. He was so nice. He, um, and he like, I remember hooked up a Marshall, like, cause I had my piece of crud and my crappy Marshall. And then he was like, well, let's, let's also, you know, I'll run also another track to this. Um, it's like a JCM 800 and it was a thinner sound. Yeah, I remember he had like a pair of those there. Yeah. It was like, you know, he just was thoughtful and, you know, being a kid, he, he wasn't, he could have been a real jerk to us. And I'd imagine it would get really tiring to do that all the time. <laughs> but yeah, he was always just, yeah, I'm sure it was awful at times, but he was thoughtful and nice. And I've been lucky overall, each time I've recorded, it's generally been with people who were kind and made you feel welcome. Yeah. Well, kind of falling yeah. off of it from the, um, after you did it from Earth to Ashes, you went in and played in Scarlet and that was like way more metal. Um, mm-hmm. How was that experience like, like playing in it? Cause, cause that was probably the first band that you actually went on like pretty decent sized tours and stuff with. Yeah. That was great. Um, it was wild. It was a very different experience. So like that band was a band that from Rita Ashes used to play with a lot. And I befriended, um, the guys in the band, but especially John Spencer, who sang in it, became mm-hmm. someone I was been very close with. I talked to him every day still. But like um, when they had first started, they were definitely much more of kind of a. There was this metal scene that came out of North Carolina, Undying, and a bunch of other bands came out of it. It was definitely very much death metal influenced. There was a tinge of hardcore in it. This was before like metalcore, I guess, was a thing. But it had, you know, screamy vocals very fast. But the, the early stuff was definitely very death metal influenced. And then they broke up for a little while. And then when they came back together, I was, this is around the time I befriended John in the middle of all that. And he and I had started playing music with the drummer from Spitfire in Virginia Beach, Beach Chris Rains. He was in Norma Jean and some other guys too. Um, and we were playing like oddly enough just mellow music, which is like maybe something more along the lines of like Kent or some kind of like just like mostly clean tone stuff. 
Um, we did. Okay. We actually started doing that when he was in D.C. and then um, George Mason and then moved back there. But then John told me like, "Hey, we're getting Scarlet back together. Andreas and Randy and I are thinking about doing that." And I was like, "Talking." I thought it was weird. I was like, "Who cares about that?" You know, like Richmond feels like it's moved on from that. Then they played me some of the demos. Like, holy shit, this is amazing. Um, it was okay. definitely was. I heard like the first. They had done some songs. Andreas had started to record himself. And I was like, wow, this is really good. It was really different. And it was so aggressive. Like Randy's riffs, especially in the early days, were just, it was so good. Um, it was chaotic, but it's also very technical, uh, very off time. You could tell, like, I mean, they were listening to like Dillinger and Mashuga. So it was like very different from anything I'd been in. And I was like, I want to play in this. And so I basically, like, if you want a second guitar player, I will do it. So that's what I did. I played with them. Um, it was it was like a short time frame, but it felt like a long one because we did a lot. So like, you know, got in that band, played with them. I played with another you know, pop punk band with them before that. They had, but we started practicing and we took it really seriously. Practiced almost every night, and to the point where we would even like videotaped our performances, like just trying to get good. Um, oh, hell yeah. So we had this big warehouse we practice in and we just focused on getting really good. And because of John's time and Spitfire, he had a good amount of connections with people. So one of the bands was Hope's Fall. They were at the time on Trustkill Records. And when they came through town, we gave them our demo, hung out with them. And then like a day later, they were like, they had given it to guy Carl Severson, Severson, who owned Ferret Records, which at the time was like probably just barely smaller than Victory Records. So they were like a big, big record label. Every Time I Die was on it, a bunch of bands like that. Mad Ball eventually was on it. So that guy contacted us. And before we had even played a show, he was talking to us. And so he came down to our first show in Richmond it was like December, like 2002, I think, and signed us. And by like March, or actually by that February, we were starting to tour. And so did a bunch of tours with that. I toured pretty much full time for that first year. And then it was amazing. I mean, it, it ended up at first, we put out an EP really quickly, and that ended up I think going to number one or number two on the college music charts. Um, oh, wow. And so it was just a really amazing experience um, in getting a tour. And I'd never been west of Tennessee until then and getting to see the whole U.S. and having some crazy experiences, like just definitely opened up my my worldview a whole lot. But in the long term, I, I was not writing a ton in that band. I think I, I wrote one song in that band that came out on the record after that they put out. Um, but I ended up leaving for a few reasons. It just, um, you know, John and I were very, very close, but the overall chemistry in the band was a little off. Like we just weren't all on the same page. Um, right. And I think, you know, for me personally too, like, you know, I, I knew at a certain point, like, I, I gave myself a year in that band to basically make a decision. Like, would we actually 
whether it's go bigger or not. And because I was in design school at the time and I could only be gone for about a year. And so around the time things started kind of breaking down between some of the members in the band, it was around the time I was like, you know what, like, I, I'm going to be gone from home. I want it to be a pleasant experience and it right. is becoming not pleasant. Um, so I left and I'm glad I did what I did. Um, I mean, John and I remained, remained really close to all of it. Um, over time, some of those friendships came back um, to some degree. But to me, I, I was so used to the feeling of the bands that I've been in of it being very close and being right. like, yeah, we all love each other. And while I did care about everyone in the band, like there wasn't that tightness other than with John. I mean, John is, you know, one of my very best friends. And so I just eventually was like, this, you know, I can't be in this if we're going to kind of be arguing and stuff like this all the time. So I came home and then you know, went on and did Spitfire later, which was a much better experience for everything, you know, I've mentioned before. And that was with John too? Yeah, yeah. So John, um, there, that band was kind of incestuous between them. So half of us had been in both Spitfire and Scarlet, but... Yeah, John, myself, and then Chris Rains, and and then Matt Beck, and a few people. We were in that band, and that was that was more along the lines of what I was mentioning. Like the band really got along. Doesn't mean it had disagreements, but that band I think felt more like yeah, we're friends who play music. And you know that last record we did was something I'm really proud of, and um. It was overall like a really, really positive experience. We didn't tour full time. I had started working full time. John was married, so was Chris. Um, and that eventually fell apart because Chris wanted to be doing something more full time, and I moved to New York. Just a lot of life changes in the band, and but all on good terms overall. But that band, you know, we did tour some. We toured with Under Oath and um, toured with some other bands. We had a chance to go on a warp tour, but it sort of got to the point where it's like, well, I can quit my job for this one warp tour date <laughs> or this one oh, wow. week of warp tour, or I can continue to have a gig and so Wow. But I, I yeah. That's a big choice. It was, but it wasn't like really the thing is like having done the touring with Scarlet, I saw what happened a little bit. I was like, if if I had been given that choice, not having the time touring with Scarlet, I would have probably been like, hell yeah, I'm going to go tour on the Warp Tour. Right. But having, having gone through Scarlet and also having a lot of friends I made to that who were on those tours, I realized like, well, I'm not going to get paid crap. Um, I'll be on right. the second stage so that no one will see at 10 in the morning. I mean, yeah. we played, like, some festivals in Scarlet. Like, we played a festival in New Jersey with Danzig and Hypo Negative and Cradle Filth, all these bands. And so when you see the bill, you're like, oh, man, it's going to be amazing. Well, they stuck us at, like, the second morning at, like, oh, 10 a.m. Wow. And so we were playing in this giant 8,000-seat arena where Bruce Springsteen practices, but there were 50 people there. <laughs> Oh it's my like, God! Can you imagine playing an eight thousand seat arena for fifty people? It's the most. It's it's 
it was comically bad. Part of it too is that festival was planned really awful. It was like in January in Asbury Park. So there was, I mean, even Danzig and Super Joy Ritual only had maybe like tops three to 500 people in the crowd, maybe a thousand. Wow. But it was just bad promoting. Um, anyway, like having seen that side of things, I was like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm in my first real quote job where I'm getting an actual salary and health benefits. I don't want to give this up. Um, yeah. To have like a, a week. Yeah. So it wasn't That's that hard of a decision. Plus having done it, I was like, yeah, I know touring's not all it's cracked up to be. Well, and I think that's like, I kind of like highlights. There's like two with bands. There's, there's really two sides to it. And one is the records and the other is touring. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and like, you know, like we fell like as a fan, as, as kids, we fell in love with the records. We didn't fall in love with yeah. the tours. Like we, we probably never got to see most of the tours for the bands that we loved, you know, for bands that changed their life. Like I've never seen fucking Metallica, you know, I've never seen yeah. you but but like, um, you know, the kind of that reality of like, if you're going to be in a band that releases records and is on a record label, you're going to have to fucking tour. Um, oh, yeah. And and so like, I don't know, like that's always been something that is kind of a weird area. There's there's bands that kind of get around it at some levels, um, but they're kind of rare. Like most bands have yeah. to go out there and do that. And if you do that, you can't really have a normal life. Um, yeah. Most of the folks that I know that have been in like kind of, you know, like popular punk bands, like they have jobs that let them leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean? totally. yeah. and because of that, they don't have like really good jobs. You know, they might have jobs they like, but like things like health benefits, they probably don't have them. Um, totally. And I think also that's a big choice too, as a human being between like, you know, just because you love something and you love doing it, do you want to make it your life's work, you know, and are yeah. you willing to like, you know, stake maybe having to have a family live off of this with its chaos, yeah. you know, it's, it's a big fucking choice, you know? And like, you know, I kind of went, I kind of took that road that you did and, and that I've generally tried to make what I make my living off of fucking not music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you totally. know? Um, and, and like music to me is a place where I can like, you know, sit down and write a riff and, you know, I'll release it. And like, maybe we'll play some shows around it, but like, it's, it's like it, I, I like it not having to be my job. Yeah, um, 100%. I can kind of, you know, have fun with it. Um, so kind of going from that, like how has music been in this, you know, in, in the past 10 years, like, have you been like writing stuff? Have you been playing with anybody? Um, here and there, like, you know, after I, after we put out that last Spitfire record, like we re we, we released some of it recently, like on vinyl. And, um, you know, we had a, luckily an offer to do that on the blessed the two records that Spitfire and I put out. Um, and so like those records came out, they did fairly well. And, but you know, we could have, we probably could have done a lot more if we had toured, but, 
and we toured some off the first one and the second one. We, we literally broke up right after Chris joined Norma Jean. I, I moved to New York, but you know, a lot of where my life went and kind of where I was talking about, you know, not giving up that job. I, I really focused on design, which has been my career over the last 20 years. And so I, um, you know, that was always, I think where I felt like, okay, this is something I love doing. I get to access and leverage the parts of my mind that I do in music of being creative. Um, but I also get to, you know, help people lead teams and you know, after Spitfire moved to New York, worked at a an agency and did that for years, a couple of years, about three years in New York and moved to Nashville and now I lead a product design team. Um and you know, I that's been my focus and I takes the lion's share of my time other than family obviously and um, oh, yeah. in terms of music. In terms of music, the only like a couple things. So oddly enough, when I was in New York, um, you know, I played a couple of shows with a guy from Spitfire was there helping out him out. And, but then I, oddly enough, we recorded a whole record for Tenacton. Not, not, I'm not joking. Um, I don't know if you remember Tenacton. Tenacton. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like. The agency I worked at at the time, we used to do big brand launches. So we did stuff for Sears and, um, you know, Mac Cosmetics and, you know, a lot of luxury fashion brands. And we also would do stuff for publishing, um, Cooks Illustrated, a bunch of things like that. So Casio, one one project was, we had done this one project that sort of, this was like 2007, so pre-iPhone. Back then, sites were like these big, crazy flash experiences. And most oh. people weren't doing real e-commerce. They were doing some of it. But we did this brand launch for a company called Rich and Skinny Jeans, which is an unfortunate name for a brand now. But at the right. time, um, the guy who started Seven Jeans, and that, that project kind of blended these sort of it was a mockery of reality television. So I was really the rock of love at the time with Brett Michaels. I thought it was hilarious. And right. so we wrote a sort of whole web episodic series mocking that. And it was basically a way to sandwich entertainment and commerce together. And it did really well, won a bunch of awards. And so after that, um, we got a lot of business from that. And one of the brands was shearing plow later turned into Merck, the drug company. But um they connected with one of their brands. We did this whole thing. The, the music thing comes in here. We had this episode series and one of the kids in one of the episodes, his name was Trent. He was like a goth kid. He was obsessed right. with this band called the Ringworms. So we were all it was all this stupid references to athlete's foot. Like it was very stupid tongue-in-cheek thing. And so what we did for the second half of the campaign, they were like, hey, we kind of want to shift. The the first half of the campaign was like a version of Mary with Children, but with this like loser dad who had never made the football team and his kid's name was Trent and all this crap. So anyway, they were like, hey, we kind of like this Trent kid. We want to focus on him for the second quarter. What can you do with that? And on the way home one night from the subway, 
I saw this poster as I got out of the subway for some band. It looked like a Coldplay ripoff. And it said, like, mm-hmm. Niv- Nivea presents, you know, whatever the band's name was. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, how shitty is it? Like, this band, probably super earnest, really want to make it. And now the only way to get a brick is from Nivea. Like, Nivea was, like, six times the size of their band name. Um, and so oh I was like, God. it's like, why don't I do that for Tenactin, but a shitty version of it? So, like, what we did is we did this Spinal Tap-like documentary about the ringworms. And the guy, he was an actor in General Hospital. He came out, and he, like, was the documentarian. And so we recorded um, 12 songs. We had, like, a guy who was a composer. He was from, like, a bossa nova band in New York. And we wrote all these songs. And then we got EMI to put out, um, like, 20,000 of them. And they were going to attach them to the Tenactin bottles at Walmart. We had the publicist from Rufus Wainwright and, like, all this shit. It was, like... It was like, we were just going to be on Funny or Die. It was like really fucking cool. And then literally, this was just a reference on timing. Summer of 2008, well, if you remember, fall of 2008 was the financial crisis. So yeah. immediately, Sharing Plow sells to Merck, which is a German drug company. And then they immediately cancel the bottom 20% performing products. So... This particular product was called Tenactin Chill, which is like, I guess chill was going to be cool with the kids. And right, um, right. so we got paid for the work, but the actual camp, all of the media buys, which if you're not familiar with advertising is, okay, the placements. So like half the budget's usually just placing it on NewYorkTimes.com or wherever. So I still have the record, like you recorded it in in Brooklyn, and then we mixed it at Tracks East in New Jersey, and I knew that guy from Stiffire Days, but still have the record, and it's it's funny, because all of the songs reference Athlete's Foot, and we filmed the six episodes. I still have all that stuff, but it just never went anywhere. I mean, it was purposely douchey, too. Like, I wore a fedora and right. suspenders. Um, so it was trying to just mock all that bullshit at the time. And we had really good video editors of the agency who made it funnier. But then after that, like, when I moved to Nashville, had not played out a ton. People are really good here, like really good players. Oh, yeah, I bet. So it's pretty, it's pretty intimidating. But I report a lot at home, and starting probably in the beginning of COVID, I started recording at home. And that's, I've probably got about four or five songs that I've done myself at home that some of them kind of veer into like the tune sound and some of them veer into like more of a neurosis kind of sound that's a little bit weirder and more, but got into that, also got into programming strings and drums and things like that. So um, that sounds that's what awesome. I've been doing. I'll share it, send you some of it. It's all half finished because I don't have a lot of time these days, but probably every few months I get something in. But I just, I'm now completing my rig so I can actually play it out loud versus just through the computer. Right. 
Oh yeah, and and you also had a um, you had a kid too, right? Yeah, I got um, married in 2009, and then I'm a son, Daniel. He's got a different middle name, so he's not a junior. But he, I had him in 2014, and then my daughter I had in 2016. So, yeah. How has that been? Been awesome. Um, definitely challenging at times, like going through COVID with two kids. Elementary oh, yeah. school is really difficult. Like having to teach them at home and work full time and but um it's been awesome like they're amazing and um but it also does you know life is very very busy that's why I don't play a lot of music anymore <laughs> but I I will be yeah I'm trying to make it now that they're at a different age and require less sort of constant entertainment it's a little bit easier to do stuff than it used to be oh yeah like when they're like fucking three to like five it's just nuts it's like yeah. the amount of atten- i mean because when they're like really little you can just kind of like sit them in a swing and <laughs> yeah but like once they turn like three and they got fucking like they start talking and they got questions and it's about like everything and like yeah that's that's kind of crazy but um, yeah my kid's like nine now getting ready to turn 10 and, and like uh they've got a little personality and um Oh, cool, yeah. but it's so it weird cool. being a parent now, though, because, like, when you reflect on, like, the kind of shit that we used to do as kids, like, you know, kind of, like, just, like, running around the neighborhood, um, you know, our parents didn't generally know where we were, all that stuff. It's such a different thing now. It really is. It is different, and it's kind of sad because I – there's a lot of things that I, I feel like kids miss out on from that era. That we had, sure. like, I feel like we call our kids a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, I, I definitely feel like that, I feel like the kids now, like, are robbed from a lot of the discovery and figuring themselves out. I feel like we, and I, and I think it's bad for everybody. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know how much of it is legitimate or not. Like, are things really more dangerous now or not? Um and so, you know, we just run around everywhere, and I miss a lot of that. And I think there's – but I also, you know, would not think of letting my kid do some of the things we used to do now. So it's, Oh, God, no. It's a much different oh, time. So. Well, hell yeah, dude. Um, you know, as as you have kind of like, you know, kind of gone through this and stuff, your life um, – what do you think was the kind of point where where you kind of were able to really get a hold of what was really important to you, like, and kind of hone in on that? Um, what age do you think you were? That's a good question. I feel like it's honestly, I mean, I feel like I've I've been lucky that I found. I feel really lucky and blessed. Like I feel like I found direction early. And I also mm-hmm. feel like I I took the right amount of risks to like open some doors, but I also think it was just fortunate too to like end up with good people. And I think that's been the biggest piece of advice I give anybody is like just the people around you are the biggest thing. Like the I mean, you can be you can have all of the right sort of 
I mean, you can have the best songs in your pocket. You can have, not that I did, but you have the best songs or the best sort of good talent or just adequate talent, whatever. But if you don't have good people around you to do it with, it's not going to ever end up anywhere good. So I, you know, starting back with Joe and then it was like, those were like, it's really fortunate to have friendships with good people. And then also knew when it wasn't working to turn away. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, my experience in, I've had, I've had sometimes I'm like, okay, time to bail. And sometimes there's even good people who go bad and you're like, all right. So I think that's a big thing. But then um, I feel like early on, I just probably even starting in like, I just, creativity has always been, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot more about as I got older. Like it's actually the way your brain works. I mean, there's, my son has Asperger's. Um, ADHD. I have ADHD, and so I've got older and worked with a lot of creatives all over the world at different times. Realized like, okay, this is like just literally how my brain works. And right. having met other designers and other people over time from very different cultures, like this is just a common way our brain works, and you're going to be happy as long as you sort of stay true to that and you will be a very miserable, unhappy person if you don't kind of yes, do like taking, part of your life. I have a kid that is on the Asperger's uh, on Spectrum 2 and um, after they were diagnosed, I read up on it and I realized like, oh, I am most definitely on that motherfucker as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I am and, too, and, somewhere. <laughs> And it like all of a sudden the world made a lot more sense to me because I, I was always like, man, was that from being abused as a kid? Was that just me being weird? Like what the fuck? And then like you see it come out in your kid and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, totally. I highly recommend everybody at some point getting a psychoeducational assessment of their kid. Like my son, yeah. we started noticing things and we didn't even – we weren't even sure that was it. Like there was just other behavior going on that just realized. Yeah. And so when we did that, it's like, Oh, well, no wonder he's, you know, he's on the spectrum. It was just like pretty eye opening. And I, mean, I, 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 I've never had like a real assessment done other than like some BS from my doctor to give me, um, methylphenidate basically. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm on the spectrum. I know I have ADHD, but all it's to say is like, I think that I can see when my son is not able to do something that he feels like he's compelled to do, how frustrating it is for him. And I notice as I've gotten older, like I will get really irritable in certain situations or I'll kind of have this hyper focus that'll happen where I can shut everything else out. And that sounds good. It's actually real bad. I think it just, I probably had an art teacher early who, you know, took an interest in me and I just always kind of leaned into that type of stuff and always had good teachers who, you know, just sort of nurtured that. And I just, I'm thankful that later on, I kind of through my son stuff learned like, okay, this is a really, I mean, having, managed a lot of designers over the years. I think it's more common than not for creative people to have ADHD or yeah. Asperger's anxiety. Like it's just I see it all the time. Um 
with engineers too. They're generally at a different end of the spectrum, but working in technology, right. working with people like that, you just see it and it's a gift. I think if you can learn how to harness it and manage it, it can be a gift. It can also really impact your relationships. Like, so like oh, I definitely sure. still struggle with a ton of it, you know, just being in a relationship with someone, you can be pretty selfish sometimes if you're not careful. I think generally people who are in art of any sort, it's a pretty selfish pursuit if you're honest about it, I think. Right. You know, whether you're writing music or you're designing something, it could be very much about you if you're not careful. How old was yeah. your uh, kid when, when um, he was diagnosed with, with uh, Asperger's? About a year and a half ago. So I um, guess he would have been right around, he was right around eight. Um, a lot of his needs were around um, executive functioning. So right. the things you and I take for granted every day where it's like you're taking a test and you realize, okay, I feel 90% sure about this thing. I'm just going to answer this and move on. Or I might move on and come back. He doesn't work that way. He's like kind of off the charts in terms of language and mm -hmm. fluid reasoning, like very high functioning. He's, he's, he's got an extremely high IQ, but things like math, he scored really low. And it was interesting because they were like, well, he actually knows the right answers. And the problem is, is he refuses to like sort of use that executive function. He's like, no, I'm going to like work it through to like, I'm sure it's right. Um, like a normal oh, wow. person would do, but, but because, you know, schools don't work that way. Schools judge you in a very sort of like time-based manner, which is freaking stupid. Right. Uh, it's like he scores lower. And so that's, as you go through this, you start to realize like, wow, education sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it is not meant for people who fit outside of a certain box. And so I think um, no, it is, that is meant for like 80% of people. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I have a, I realize why I failed the first grade. Now I thought it was always, my mom used to just say like, well, you, you were on allergy medication that made you drowsy. It's like, <laughs> no, I, what I realized later is like, okay, I went to a reading counselor and basically I would read pages, but never absorbing the information because my mind was somewhere else. You know, like my mind oh, wow. was, and I do that still. Like I have to, I don't give a crap about what I'm reading or doing. My mind will be off somewhere else doing something else. So, but if I'm interested, I'll be a hundred percent locked in. And that's, I think what's interesting about ADHD and some of these things is my son's is just turned up another level. Like he could tell you, he read all of Harry Potter in like six months, like all of the books um, when he was like in first grade. So if he's interested in something, he can recite it all. He can like right now he's obsessed with Japan. And all he talks about is like either manga, the creators of manga or, you know, the creators of, you know, Zelda and, you know, the different oh, wow. sort of gaming companies. So like those kids, like they're, there's a really interesting um, person. Her name's Temple Grandin. Have you ever heard of her? Yeah. 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 So she's like, she makes this big case for, you know, different types of thinkers, like 
people on the autism spectrum, people with Asperger's, like people, we need to be creating more paths for these people because they're, they're the people who are going to solve things like yeah, huge, like huge issues. But, you know, unfortunately, the, a lot of these kids, if they don't grow up in the right environment or the right access, they just sort of are like, oh, well, that kid's stupid or weird or dumb, and we're not going to just put them over there. And and these are, you know, some of these people are nonverbal. Some of them are verbal, but also, like, have social anxiety. And But, you know, you have people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk that are people on that spectrum. Right. It's like those are, like, we need those types of people so badly, so... Anyway, it's it's Temple Grandin is a super interesting person to, to hear. She makes a lot of comparisons between the autistic mind and the animal mind and that she describes the way her brain works um, as like Google for pictures. Like if you ask her, hey, what is a if you say the word like church? Most people will see like a generic church in their head, like a steeple or, or an icon of a church. Mm-hmm. And she'll see like specific churches she's seen in her life, like multiple. Um, oh, wow. And her, her mind will go through like a Rolodex, which is you learn about animals and the way they perceive things. Like, you know, you've probably had those experiences where you walk up to your dog and your dog freaks out because it doesn't realize it's you. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, I was wearing this red shirt or I was wearing this hat or, you know, a a horse might freak out because of a bush. And it's like it sees shapes and things. It doesn't perceive things. I don't know. It's it's a really fascinating when you start to realize, like, just the way people's brains work changes so much of how they interact with the world and perceive problems and solve problems and see patterns and learning about that about him really sort of opened up a lot like okay like this person i work with who sometimes seems difficult is just approaching this problem really differently than i am you know yeah no i mean that's 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 a you know like like the thing i've noticed about folks on the spectrum is like i I think the hard thing is like you know you want to give them space specifically to kids you want to give them space to kind of like do the things that they're kind of fascinated with um but simultaneously like keeping them on the path to doing that i I think can be hard too um especially when you have things like adhd or something like for me learning that stuff it also kind of like filled in a lot of gaps over the course of our life and i think for our ages Autism, I don't believe even ADHD existed back back when we were kids. Like, I know ADD, ADD did, and yeah. I believe I was diagnosed with that, but my mom uh, declined to put me on anything for it because she was just like, yeah. I think he just doesn't give a shit about what you guys want him to care about. <laughs> yeah, well, which is a good, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I never, a lot of it did exist back then. Or, I mean, didn't something didn't exist. A lot of it wasn't identified back then. And right. there was also such a stigma around autism back then. I mean, there still is. Um, yeah. But, like, at the same time, like, depending on what circles you're in, 
Like if you're working in technology, it's like, oh yeah, well, half right. these people are probably on the spectrum. Like that's, and, and I don't know. I, there's all kinds of people you start to learn about David Byrne from the talking heads and all these people are like, oh yeah, like they have that and it makes sense. But um, anyway, it's, it's actually a, an awesome thing. If you oh, for sure. like seeing, it's an awesome thing if you can learn how to deal with it. But again, I think the biggest challenge is like, you have to figure a lot of it out for yourself. Like we only discovered some of it because we had that assessment done and then just had friends. Like we wouldn't even have the assessment done at that place if we didn't have a friend who's a teacher. And then we started to learn about individual development plan or IDPs and how the state's required to get yeah. to your student. And so it's like a lot of stuff where it's like, that's I think the biggest thing that I want to see more of is people just giving more access. Cause there's, you know, there's just so many kids out there who are like probably really brilliant, but just don't have access or you know, their parents are busy, you know, like yeah. most people are trying to make a living. And so I think that's, that's what I would love to see more of. This is really heartbreaking. And, and someone is that these kids will lash out um, and, you know, can sometimes get very violent if they're not, they feel like they're not being heard or they feel like that they're, you know, just, you can get really isolating for those kids. It's sad. And I think people, because the autism spectrum is so wide, yeah, you know, saying you're on the spectrum you know, you might have a memory of someone who did have a really hard time. And there are cases where it can be very extreme and right. it can really you know, be really tough. But there's also, I mean, way Temple Grandin breaks it down, there's really three sort of mindsets she talks about on the spectrum. There's the completely nonverbal, there's pattern thinkers, which are generally your engineers, and there's visual thinkers, which it might be your designers and things like that. And so... I mean, there's a whole wide spectrum of it, but um, yeah, it could be, I think many more people than we assume are on whatever spectrum there is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad to have learned about it. And that concludes my conversation with Dan Tello. I'd like to thank Dan for taking the time to talk with me. You can find other episodes like this on our podcast streaming services under the show name Various Things or on our website, VariousThingsPodcast.com. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.